Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. At times in its history, the U.S. Army has personified the admonition that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. This is especially disconcerting since the U.S. Army has been the architect of its past, and yet, as in the case of unconventional conflicts, the U.S. Army has often sought to bury those memories in favor of a pledge never to fight in such ways again. The reality, however, is that the Army does not usually get to choose what type of war it fights. Its political leaders choose. The unconventional guerrilla-style operations of the Second Seminole War are a prime case in point. With us today to discuss how the Army wanted to fight the Second Seminole War versus how the Seminole forced them to fight and how its leaders adapted is Dr. James S. Robbins. Dr. Robbins is an author, political commentator, and professor with expertise in national security, foreign and military affairs, military history, and American politics. Dr. Robbins' books include Last in Their Class, Custer, Pickett, and the Goats of West Point. During his years in government service, Dr. Robbins directed the U.S. intelligence community Center for Academic Excellence and also taught international relations at the National Defense University and at the United States Marine Corps Command and Staff College. His insights gained from researching and writing last in their class inform our discussion today about adaptability against adversity. Dr. James Robbins, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thanks for having me on. You talk in your book, Last in Their Class, about the goats. Who are the goats? And what goats stand out in West Point's history that may be applicable to the times that we study, the Second Seminole Wars? Goats are the bottom-ranking graduates in any uh, U.S. Military Academy class. And there has been a tradition over the years of honoring the last man or the goat. Uh, They give him a a dollar from every other member of the class, which, you know, these days can add up to a lot of money. But, uh, I mean, this is a long-standing uh, tradition of honoring the last man, and I wrote last in their class to examine the question, how did these people do out of West Point? I mean, were they, you know, screw-ups, or, uh, you know, did they prevail, or what actually happened to the goat? So that was the, that was the point of the book. Now, Robert E. Lee famously went through four years without a demerit. True, and uh, actually not uncommon in his day. Uh, there were other people who did the same feat. Uh, he graduated, of course, second in his class. There's an idea that he's the only guy who did that, but he's not. There's also not necessarily a relationship to demerits and where you graduate in the class. Not hard and fast, although the people at the bottom did tend to accumulate more demerits. And, of course, if you went beyond 200 demerits, they'd kick you out. William Tecumseh Sherman, in his autobiography, doesn't come across as a uh, fastidious as Robert E. Lee, more Zachary Taylor than Winfield Scott. Uh, He got a few demerits in his days. This spit and polish wasn't his thing. He did fairly well in his military career, at least after after his time starting in the Civil War and going on from there. So this may have something uh, to bear on what you say. It doesn't necessarily mean how you're going to turn out, where you place, or how many demerits you get. 
Oh, it totally doesn't. Grant, for example, was right in the middle of his class, uh, like Dwight Eisenhower, you know, the two uh, West Point presidents, that Eisenhower said, if uh, anyone saw signs of future greatness in me when I was at West Point, they kept it to themselves. <laughs> so for our purposes here, what goats may uh, apply to the Second Seminole War? Well, so far as top of the class, bottom of the class, I, you, you don't really see a difference in how these kinds of officers went through the war. Uh, it, because just the nature of the war was such that everybody was basically having the same experience. It was like any other unconventional conflict. I mean, when we talk about the Second Seminole War, which was what I focused on, there were like, tremendous periods of boredom and nothing happening. And then there might be a massacre. There might be a small skirmish somewhere. And then you get back to just camp life. So whether you were at the top of the class, the bottom of the class, you were pretty much having the same experience uh, in this time. Whether you were in the top or the bottom of your class, the skills that you had didn't necessarily prepare you for fighting in Florida. Oh, no, not at all. The thing to know about how the cadets were being educated at the time, and we're talking about... 1830s, 1820, uh, that time period. They were not training for counterinsurgency, what we would today call counterinsurgency, what they might then call a guerrilla or something like that, frontier war. It wasn't in the curriculum whatsoever. So far as what the cadets were learning, and on the educational side, they were learning geometry, physics, drawing, they were learning French, things like this, things that would befit them being at an engineering school, which is really what it was. And then on the tactical side, they were learning infantry tactics, artillery, cavalry, all from like Chamonix, from the classic Napoleonic playbook, uh, which was another reason why they had to learn French, because they needed to read about the Napoleonic Wars. So they were training to be Napoleonic warriors, essentially, they were not training at all. There was even no discussion of training for the kind of frontier conflicts that many of them went to immediately upon leaving West Point. Perhaps a classic example of the Army fighting the last war again? In part, it's that. It's also that they were preparing for like the worst case war or the biggest war. Because if you have a big war, and the big wars are less frequent, but they're also the most important. So if you're not ready for that, then you're not ready. Uh, the small wars are more frequent, but they're less risky. I mean, there's no chance that the Seminole War was going to somehow result one day in the Seminoles marching on Washington or something. You know, I mean, the, the worst case in the Seminole War was it would just keep going. So... Uh, the Army, or the military in general, has traditionally trained for the worst contingency and the biggest contingency, not necessarily the most frequent ones. And uh, the most frequent ones are often looked at as a sideshow. Right, because usually the risk is lower. But, you know, the, the problem with that is if you don't take it seriously, uh, these small wars, once they get into the political realm, then they become much bigger. You know, they become amplified. We saw that during the Second Seminole War when it had a definite impact on the presidency of Martin Van Buren. I'm, I'm not going to say that it cost him uh, his second term, but it didn't help. 
And uh, we've seen that throughout. I mean, when you talk about the Vietnam War, for example, and I also wrote a book on the Tet Offensive, we, when, when the wars become small wars, when they become more about politics than about the war itself, and we know that war and politics are highly interconnected, but when they enter the domestic political realm, and then it almost becomes that it doesn't matter what happens on the battlefield, uh, that war is going to be lost. And certainly with the Second Seminole War. The president who followed Jackson was his vice president, and the policy was Indian removal. And he's a successor, and he's still carrying out the policy of Indian removal. The facts on the ground may say, we're not going to be able to remove these folks, except at great cost. But the political decision is, great, the policy is Indian removal, get back to it. Right, and also since the policy was kind of grinding on it wasn't at first not you know after the first initial things that set the war off the massacres like Dade massacre that that kicked it off you know in a big flurry once it kind of reduced down to the undercurrent of politics it just became this grinding and expensive and embarrassing conflict that uh, I don't think the Van Buren administration knew what to do with. It wasn't until we got John Tyler as president, Harrison serving a month and not really having a chance to, to weigh in or shape it, who looked at it and we'd say in colloquial terms, saw that he didn't have a political dog in the fight. Why are we doing this again? It's costing us how much? Hey, Secretary of Defense, wrap this thing up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he could. they could declare victory. And in fact, Victory had been declared several times in the Second Seminole War, uh, and then the Seminoles kept showing people that victory had not been achieved. And so, uh, right, finally, uh, when you get to Tyler, he can just say, we're going to, you know, we're just going to say it's over. We're going to get rid of whoever we still have to deport. We're going to deport the rest of it, forget it, and then it's pretty much on to Mexico after that. Back to West Point. As a newly commissioned officer, who'd gotten training and education from West Point. What did the Army expect of them? What did the Army want them to do as a new lieutenant? Well, you had this is where actually class rank does come into play because the top-ranking cadet, when they graduated and were commissioned, they were given jobs like topographical engineering or engineering or ordnance. The things where you, you really had to have skills, you really had to have learned something, you need your math skills, you need other kind of skills like that. And people at the top tended to go off, and they were doing those kind of things that were important for the country and for developing the country, mapping it, exploring it, building the infrastructure, building the coastal defense forts, which, speaking of high-cost items, I mean, this is something that people don't remember a lot, the original homeland security, you know, when we built these forts all around the country against British or Spanish invaders that were never actually used except in our civil war. But the, I mean, those are the kind of things, building and manning those forts, building the roads, the canals. This is what the top of the class was doing. When you get down to the training at the, the people at the bottom of the class, they tended to go into artillery or lower down would go into infantry. And then at the bottom, they'd be going into the dragoons. I don't know why the horse soldiers were at the bottom, but there they were. And so these were the people who tended more to be posted to places like Florida, uh, people who were more in the combat arms. And the other people at the top of the class 
tended, not all the time, but they tended to go off and do these other things. One of the benefits of the Second Seminole War, if one could actually find a silver lining benefit from it, is that so much of Florida then got mapped and some roads got built. That's true. Uh, when they were particularly implementing uh, Taylor's plan to break Florida down into little cantonments, you know, little boxes, and, you know, when they essentially boxed off the enemy, uh, that did require road building, fort construction, mapping, and really understanding the area. And it's not that the top-of-the-class people weren't serving there. I know in the book that uh, the number two guy in the class of 1830, Lieutenant Basinger, was killed with Dade, at the opening of the conflict. So there were some higher-ranking West Pointers in Florida. It wasn't all the bottoms. These are good skills, the things we talk about. These are good skills in in officers to have in a peacetime army. But when you're trying to fight a guerrilla war, these skills may be able to help the army to go out to to have an open field battle because the the roads are there. But they're, they're not really adequate for actually waging the war. Well, in the guerrilla phase, it's definitely not as useful, but they had to learn by doing. And you see this in a lot of our unconventional conflicts where the commanders and the politicians who are telling them what to do uh, go in with an idea of how to fight the war, but then the war goes in a totally different direction. And so you see a series of adaptations. You see a series of commanders you know, like we did in the Second Seminole War, where you'd have a new general every couple of years coming in with a new concept of how to fight this thing. And essentially, it's just a series of adaptations where they finally figure it out, and either the enemy is worn down, or the cause of the conflict goes away, or something. But it's just, you know, adaptation, one step after another. Eventually, they figure it out. There were some things the Army just didn't want to do, maybe for moral reasons, maybe for professional reasons. At the beginning, Andrew Jackson said, you know, do like me, go burn the villages and steal the crops and so forth and starve them out. And the Army was not really wanting to do that, and yet by the end, that became a policy that the Army had to do to to wrap up the fighting. An adaptation they didn't want to take and go to, but went to anyway after lots of futile fighting in it. I think it's interesting how one of the adaptations you see in warfare sometimes is when people say just obliterate or scorched earth or something like that. And uh, I note in journal of Nathaniel White Hunter, who was the GOAT of 1833, who he kept the seminal war journal, which is a compendium of his boredom and frustration at the entire thing as he sat out in the wilderness not seeing one Indian basically garrisoning and his problems with the ordnance officer whom he considers his main enemy. They get an order coming down saying that that to take no prisoners, basically. And he writes in his journal, he says he will not enforce that order. He doesn't believe in that order. He will tell his troops not to enforce that order, and that's just the way it's going to be. So you did have that sense among some of the troops, and I think especially some of the West Pointers, that This is not what they signed on to be. They're here to be, you know, officers, combat leaders, gentlemen, not to go down and burn villages and commit those kinds of acts, which is not to say that some people didn't salute smartly and go out and do it, which, of course, we know they did. The image of the Seminole to a lot of people was of a ruthless savage or based on some of the massacres and some of the things that happened. That was the idea. But uh, some of the soldiers said, well, you know, 
that's not us. They can do that. If that's how they're going to fight the war, that's on them. But we're better than that. And you, you see that argument even to today in the war on terrorism where terrorists commit all kinds of atrocities. And uh, it's just not in our military culture to do that. We hold ourselves up to a higher standard, enforce the laws of war, because we're not there to sink to their level, essentially, in what we're doing overseas, which is not to say that things don't happen. Of course they do, but when they do, those people are, are shamed and prosecuted. So that's the difference between us and them in that model. That was also seen in the Second Seminole Wars with the capturing of black Seminoles or escaped slaves. Uh, many of the slavers wanted them back and they said, we should send the army out to grab these people and, uh, and give them back to us and put them back in slavery. And the army said, whoa, 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 wait a second. We're not slave catchers. We're professional soldiers here. And as it came to be, they considered them prisoners of war, which put them in a whole different category and allowed them to ship them to the Oklahoma Territory, where they were not going to be subject to being brought back into slavery or to being enslaved in the first place just because of the color of their skin. Yes, and um, there was also the case of the bloodhounds, which I'm sure you know, that, which is another of uh, the media and the military kind of things, how something becomes a cause celeb uh, when Governor Call uh, decided uh, to bring in bloodhounds to try to track down Seminoles, but it was immediately characterized as, no, they're using these uh, bloodhounds really to track down the escaped slaves, and that it was seen as a cover for that very operation that you mentioned. This particular conflict had many interesting side currents that touch on larger issues in our politics and in our history, uh, and particularly slavery, as you know. Now, there's an urban legend, perhaps, about all these West Point officers who resigned their commission rather than to go fight in the Florida War. How true is that? Well, in the first year of the war, 117 officers resigned, not all West Pointers, but regular Army officers, some of whom were West Point. And then after that, it continued at a rate of about 30 per year resigning. And uh, Hunter notes in his war journal how disgusted he is and how he would like to resign, although he didn't. So I think that there's definitely something to it. You did not see this level of resignation before the Seminole War. You can attribute it to this, the people saying that they just, it's not what they signed up for, and they would rather go do other things. For those officers who stayed in the Army, especially those who'd been educated at West Point, why did they tend to forget what they learned once they left Florida? or at least that's the general story about them. I think that in part it's that the Mexican War came right on the heels of it. And that was the war they wanted to fight. That was the war they trained to fight. That was a war that really put West Point on the map, I mean, particularly the academy, because in, number one, there was political opposition to even having a military academy. And the West Pointers always wanted to prove that they were providing something. Because, you know, mapping and all this other really critical stuff that they were doing, there's not a lot of glory to that. It's not getting in the newspapers, you know, that somebody mapped a part of uh, Wyoming or something. You know, that's just not making headlines. But in the opening moves of the Mexican War, when you had uh, Zachary Taylor and his column essentially moving through Texas, fighting significant battles, 
outnumbered and cut off from supplies and with no militia. See, this was the difference between here in Florida where you had uh, militia, at least in the big battles in the beginning. But in Texas, in the opening moves of the Mexican War, it was all regular army, it was mostly West Point officers, and it was their chance to be able to say, look at what we can do. Look at what the academy has trained us to do. We're out here winning significant battles. We're defeating Mexico single-handedly. You know, this band of brothers out here moving through Texas. You know, that was really what they wanted to focus on. In part, it was they just wanted to put Florida behind them, and in part, it was what was ahead of them, that they were going to go off and do these great things. Unconventional war can not be the most glamorous thing, but there's more to it than that. It's a fairly uncomfortable way of operating. The conditions were horrible in Florida, and uh, the fighting itself was less than desirable. Was it the combination of all that that led some officers to say, ah, if I have anything to say, the Army's not going to fight in this kind of war again? Well, probably. Uh, When you look at all of our unconventional wars, they have things in common. Um, Like, they just seem to go on for a long time. The tempo of activity, it tends to be lower and repetitive. Kind of, it's almost garrison duty, but with the chance of you getting shot at any particular day or blown up. It tends to be more political. How do you determine victory in these things, in these unconventional wars? For example, it's it's just a lessening of tempo until the enemy kind of goes away. It's not like moving across Mexico to Mexico City, uh, you know, uh, seizing control of it or driving across the Rhine, something like that, like we see in conventional wars. In unconventional war, you have to ask every day, are we winning or losing? What's going on? Look at Afghanistan today, for example, which should have ended a long time ago. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of officers probably didn't want to do go through that again. It probably wasn't very much fun for them or very rewarding in any professional sense. And they probably just said, you know, let's, let's try to avoid those kind of things in the future. But, of course, they couldn't. You've written that the Army tried as quickly as possible to forget the Second Seminole War. And yet there's a curious remnant from the war that survived and still used by soldiers today. What is that and what is its origin? Oh, yeah. Well, probably the the most enduring uh, thing from the Second Seminole War came from a a chief, a band leader named Koakuchi, a noted band leader of his day, who... uh, who surrendered his band. In fact, the interesting story there, just as a sideline, is that when he surrendered, his band had had waylaid a a troop of traveling actors and and, uh, captured their baggage. And so when he came in, he was dressed as Hamlet, which is interesting all by itself. But at a banquet honoring their noted prisoner, which, you know, speaking of the civilized side of war, was something they did. The soldiers were standing up and giving toasts which is something they did, you know, here's to the president, here's to the girls back home, or what have you. And Koakuchi, who didn't speak English and didn't know what was going on, asked his interpreter, a guy named Gopher John, what is this? Like, what are they doing? And Gopher John said, well, it's like a greeting. So Koakuchi stood up and very solemnly said, hua, which was his greeting to them, hua. Everybody around the table said, hua, and it, you know, a song was written about it. It, it caught on. It went through the army. It's with us to uh, this day. It's this strange, all-purpose thing. How are you doing? Hua. Hua. 
you know, it could describe either a soldier who's got high intensity, positive morale, or one who's just letting you know, yeah, it stinks here. Hula. Well, it's Kawakuchi. <laughs> he gave it to us. Thank you, Wildcat. Now, back to more substantive things. Uh, the Army's leaders often say they have operational plans, but no one should forget, despite the operational plans, the enemy gets a vote. How true is this with the, how the Seminole Warrior Resistance operated in uh, warding the Army's plans? Oh, definitely, because uh, you know the plans weren't so great to begin with. You had kind of the typical problems that you see in unconventional war. Right off the bat, they misestimated the number of enemy, for example. Uh, Andrew Jackson, so there's like a couple hundred of them, just go in there and clean it out. You know, that was his attitude. And since he's the president, who's going to argue with him? You know, instead of thousands, which there actually were. Uh, they had poor knowledge of the terrain, as we mentioned. Like, they didn't know about the interior of Florida. Uh, poor knowledge of the motivation of the enemy. Although it's pretty obvious if you're deporting people from their homeland, they're going to be pretty determined to fight. And... Uh, then the politics of it all, how domestic politics got involved in this and, and kept frustrating the war planning. Not to mention their utter lack of any tactical grasp of how to handle this fighting. Yes, at first there was some large-scale, semi-conventional type battles, but after that, no one had a clue what to do. So, yeah, very frustrating for the original planners. But as we mentioned, eventually they kind of got a grip on it, and when you get General Worth in command, he started developing things that looked very much like kind of joint special operations using the Army and Navy Marines to go in and kind of fight Indian style. It's very much, you know, Apocalypse Now kind of approach. Uh, Colonel Kurtz, you know, fight it their way, which is, is very interesting uh, when you look at contemporary special operations and how it's been developed. But really, I think the roots of it, in a formal sense, were from the Second Seminole War. And just because the enemy gets a vote doesn't mean that vote is consequential as General Worth was able to show in the end. General Worth was willing to learn from the Seminoles how to fight them. You know, he, he kind of observed how are things going and how do we adapt to this situation. It's very interesting what he did. He was only not a guy who, who was looking for the decisive battle, like we're going to have the, the one thing that finishes it. His approach was incremental and it was adaptive and ultimately effective. So there's an officer uh, who's able to take the unconventional warfare lessons to heart and employ them successfully. How However, in later wars, Mexico and the Civil War, what examples are there of officers who took these type of unconventional warfare lessons to heart when the situation demanded it and employed them on behalf of either the Union Army or the Confederate Army? Well, it's, it's really hard to find people who come out explicitly and say, you know, according to what I learned in Florida, I'm going to do this. It's very difficult to find lessons learned like we might see today, you know, lessons learned from Florida that were directly applied. I really didn't come across anybody who was crediting their experience with Florida for later successes or later innovations that they had in uh, later wars. William Sherman had a famous march from Georgia, from Atlanta to the coast in Savannah. Would uh, we be able to attribute any of what he saw in Florida to uh, how he employed his troop on the famous march in Georgia? You know, I wouldn't credit him with that, uh, making that direct linkage. Also, if you want to see his learning curve, if you look at the 1867 uh, frontier war, in Kansas, you know, the Sioux and Cheyenne, it showed he learned nothing, <laughs> if you want my opinion. He had no idea how to engage the 
frontier uh, Indian at all, which uh, I think would have, the failure of that campaign to achieve anything would have, would attest to that. I think he was at that banquet with Koakuchi, though. Maybe he was the Hua guy. Well, I, I read that he's the one who escorted him in. As a young lieutenant, he was the one who brought in Wildcat. There you go. Maybe credit Sherman with who, I don't know. White is preparing future officers for conventional war, but seeing them forced to reluctantly take charge in an unconventional war, like the Second Seminole War, why does that still resonate with us today? We still have the same challenges. Uh, unconventional warfare is still with us. It's more um, more prominent, if anything. Uh, yet we also still have uh, conventional major conflict type situations, which is still the, the biggest and most complicated type of war fighting. You know, I taught uh, in programs for the government, uh, for the Marine Corps, and also at National Defense University, mainly in the counterterrorism, counterinsurgency area. And for example, if you go back before 9/11, when like right before 9/11. I was working for the Marines and teaching in their command and staff college curriculum on what they called military operations other than war, which was basically this grab bag. Nobody knew what it was. It's like non-dairy creamer. You know what it isn't, but what is it? See, everyone knew what war was, and most of the curriculum, 80% or more, was on how are you going to fight at the operational level if you have to you know, take a air ground task force and put it ashore somewhere. And these are very important skills that Marines and others in the Joint Force need to know. And it's very complicated. And nobody saw 9-11 coming. And so operations other than war, which we spent a few weeks on, included everything else, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, peacekeeping operations, peace enforcement, humanitarian operations, strikes and raids, uh, military support to civil authorities, everything. You know, and throw in law of war and just war and stuff like that, too. All that stuff was crammed into a few weeks, and the whole rest of the curriculum was conventional warfighting. And then 9-11 happened. Okay, suddenly everybody gets excited about counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. By that time, I was at National Defense University, and we did a program with Special Operations Command where we were training people in that. And there was this huge push on that. But that can't be your whole be-all and end-all. There's still China out there. There's still, you know, Russia, whoever, whoever the next big looming threat is. So it's kind of the same thing. We're learning lessons, and we're learning a lot from all of our experiences out there. But these small wars aren't the biggest risk. The big war is the biggest risk. There's still nuclear weapons. There's still a need for, you know, space force. There's still cyber terrorism, something we don't even understand yet. I don't know if you would call it unconventional war or what you would call it, but it's out there, and it will be a component of future conventional conflict. So, again, we get back to that calculus. You have to plan for the worst case, but you're also going to get a greater frequency of the lesser case. So you really have to know handle both things. If Jim Robbins was in charge back at the time of the Second Seminole War, how might you have said they should prepare or to wage the fight? It's hard to say. Um, I think they should have done a lot more with what today we would call human terrain mapping and getting to understand the different tribes, the different bands, trying to understand better what they wanted, you know, how they could have been convinced to not do what they were doing. But again, you're constrained by, if you have a national command authority that says it is the policy of the United States government to hunt down these people and remove them to Oklahoma, then you basically put the person on the ground in a situation where he can't make those deals. You know, the what do you want? What, what's it going to take to get you to stop fighting? 
or even to help us against you know the next tribe it's not going to work because the people who are trying to get it to cooperate know that at the end of the day they're going to have to go to Oklahoma so I would say that the whole enterprise was hamstrung by this policy and again that gets back to war and politics. I mean, at the end of the day, the political leaders are going to be the ones determining your metrics. So if they say victory is achieved when we deport everybody, well, you know, there's no way you can negotiate around that. And for better or worse, the generals get forced to be diplomats, but they're constrained by this. They could come up with a diplomatic way to entice the Seminoles to leave or to leave the Seminoles alone, but the political leaders had the final say, and this was the policy they wanted to uh, have implemented until they didn't. Absolutely. It's conceivable that you could have had a situation of trying to find a modus vivendi with the Seminole leaders where they could stay on their land and you know try to have kind of a, a peaceable solution, a reservation-type system maybe. I'm, you know, I don't know, but something better than we're going to uproot everybody and ship them away. I mean, tell me the difference between that and ethnic cleansing or, you know, other than they get to live. Well, one might look at uh, Kosovo or before Kosovo uh, because they prevented the worst of it uh, over in Bosnia-Herzegovina with a government that uh, that looked the other way while militias went out and ethnically cleansed. But I mean, they, they went out and killed people, whereas the army of a republic could not do that to carry out this policy. Yeah, and I think it's to the credit of, of officers like uh, Nathaniel White Hunter, whom I mentioned, who said, you know, we get this crazy order, we're just not gonna, we're just not gonna do it. Period. I mean, it just, it wasn't worth it to them to be that kind of soldier. Given that what we may see is the disconnect between the training at West Point and uh, how the officers had to actually operate, would no training at all have served the officers better than the curriculum that uh, military academy offered them? No, I don't think so. If you look at the conduct of the militia in the war, you know, not to dig on them, but they do what militia do. You know, they want to run in and fight and and shoot things up, and that's what they do. But the militia, their their contribution to the war was in the beginning when that kind of skill set, you know, the grab your musket and, and go kick ass uh, was valuable. But in the later kind of counterinsurgency part of the war, you had to have training because you had to be able to keep discipline. You had to be able to know how to command and lead your troops. Even if the duty isn't fighting major battles, it, you could argue it's even more important in those situations where it's kind of a grinding day-by-day -day garrison situation to have people who are trained in, you know, how to run things, how to just be a, a, a disciplined officer and kind of keep everything together. So in that, West Point training was really valuable because they had a lot of training in that, um, particularly just in the daily structure of being at West Point, where you were held under very tight discipline, and also in something they did at the summer encampment, uh, which was part of the curriculum where they would just spend all summer living in tent and uh, conducting themselves as though they were in so I think that type of training was especially helpful, not so much the Napoleonic warrior kind of you know, tactical training, but the other type of training, officership, leadership, and discipline. I think that was very valuable. So I mentioned in the beginning about adaptability against adversity. 
Is that the great lesson for officers, at least, that one could take from the Second Seminole War? Along with all the military education and training they had, they had to learn adaptability against adversity, and that was on the field, not necessarily in the classroom. Oh, yeah, I think so. And I think that that's true in even in conventional large-scale conflict, but definitely very important in unconventional conflict. And it's interesting that it kind of swings back to the theme of the GOAT. What you find with the bottom-of-the-class type people I mean, the top of the class people were very, they were smart, they were disciplined, they did all their studies, you know, they checked all their blocks, they were very much that kind of officer. The guys at the bottom, they weren't always at the bottom, or even often at the bottom, because they were dummies. Number one, it was hard to get in a West Point, and, you know, dummies weren't necessarily going there. And the other thing is, once you were there, back in those days, they were throwing people out all the time. You had attrition rates in classes of over 50% because people were either not meeting the discipline requirements or they just weren't smart enough or whatever. And they were more than willing to just eject people from West Point back in those days. So if you were at the bottom, you were at least a survivor. But the other thing was, you had people and like some of the famous goats, like George Pickett or George Custer, or Henry Heath, who were actually pretty smart guys, but who didn't care. They just they just wanted to have a good time. And so they were clever enough to figure out ways to either get around the system or to talk their way out of the trouble they got into. So what you find at the bottom of the class, and even, you know, uh, Longstreet, he was like third from the bottom, fifth from the bottom, something like that. Uh, other There were other famous guys who were very close to the bottom. They tended to be the innovators. They tended to be sort of outside-the-box thinkers and people who could adapt and be agile in these situations. And you see that later. Later, when they're in command, they have a different approach than, say, some of the top-of-the-class guys who were very much by the book. I mean, I guess George McClellan would be, if you want a poster child for this, you know, those kind of commanders. I think that when you're talking about adaptation, you know, the guys at the bottom of the class have something to teach you because they had to adapt all through their cadet life just to graduate. And if there was a war where you really needed to adapt well, at that time period, the Second Seminole War was it. Absolutely. Jim Robbins, thank you so much for joining us today on The Seminole Wars. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.